we provide services that actually are less expensive than some of the uh, crisis system services. So like emergency rooms, hospitals, uh, corrections facilities, uh, those all have a much higher cost of serving people than does PSH. Mm. And we actually had a program where we looked at um, ratio of number of tenants to number of staff and received some funding to do a pilot program where we reduced the ratio. So we had 50 tenants to one service person. And in the past it had been 100 or 200 tenants to one service person. And when we implemented that, we had a third party evaluator come and look at our outcomes. And one of the things that they found was that in general, for every dollar that was invested in our program, there was a dollar 38 return to the community because the people that were getting these services were not accessing emergency services as much. They were more stable. They were more stable with their mental health, more stable with their physical health, um, felt more part of their community. And um, so just that 18 month period of the pilot program, it was a couple hundred thousand dollars savings for 50 people to the community. Wow, that is impressive. Okay, welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Today, I'm really, really excited to have this guest on, uh, Jennifer Sharma from the Community Housing Network in Ohio. And Jennifer is the Chief Strategy Officer where she joined uh, CHN um, in 2017. And she currently guides CHN's strategy and resource development team, which also includes strategic planning and initiatives resource development and marketing, quality improvement, asset management, human resources, and information technology. What does she not do? Wow, that was a lot of stuff. Um, but we're really excited to have Jennifer on today because she CHN is really responsible for PSH, which stands for Permanent Supportive Housing. And it's a different way to approach the affordable housing issue or pandemic or crisis, whatever you want to call it. And I really was excited to get Jennifer on there to one, talk about the mission today, but also talk about how to actually other investors or people that want to contribute to this cause get involved with the organization. So Jennifer, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Oh, this is fun. I'm really excited for this conversation because it sounds like you guys are doing this on a whole nother level. So maybe let's just start there, Jennifer. Like, give us a little bit about your background and how you got involved with the CHN. My background is in nonprofit human services. I have worked in a number of different areas from child welfare to corrections and uh, now in housing. I came to CHN uh, as a consultant to work on their strategic plan. And they had an opening in their um, chief operating officer position. And um, I was asked to step into that role. And I enjoyed the agency, enjoyed the people, uh, very strongly aligned with their mission. And so I took the position and here we are. <laughs> wow. Sounds like 
that was the perfect fit with the perfect opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe for folks that don't really know what permanent supportive housing means, maybe let's start there because I really want to be able to define it and help educate folks because this is a term that not a lot of people even know about. Sometimes when people hear about affordable housing, they just think about low-income housing or formerly known as Section 8. But you guys are doing this on a whole nother level. So let's just start there. Can you just explain to us what PSH even uh, as permanent supportive housing even means and what that is? Sure. So <clears throat> it's much like what the, the name says, permanent supportive housing. It is affordable housing and it serves people who uh, need a little more support to be able to live independently in the community. Um, it is um, foundational to, well, we believe that, you know, providing housing first is foundational to allowing people to um, heal any trauma they might have had. Typically, the folks that are in some sort of permanent supportive housing have backgrounds where they have trauma or might, for us, um, our residents have mental health disabilities and or addictions, histories of homelessness, and um, most, if not all, have experienced some sort of trauma in their lives. And so um, this housing allows people to live in a community. They sign a lease just like you and I would. It is um, uh, not like a traditional residential program. It is a housing Mm -hmm. program where they're signing leases, their neighbors, just like you and I would be, um, to other folks in the community and they're part of the community. Wow, that is really cool. I didn't know that they actually had to sign a lease. That's really interesting. It seems like, you know, the responsibility is still there. But how is PSH like different than I want to say like maybe a homeless shelter or transitional housing? Help us understand the difference between your program, what you guys are doing versus other sort of uh, like homeless shelters or something like that. So a shelter um, and transitional housing, both of those are temporary solutions. Uh, Permanent supportive housing is permanent. Uh, They can live in our housing as long as they would like or they need to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, then there's also the element of the supportive services that's in place. So when people are in shelters, there are case managers available and other services, but those are typically focused on getting the person out of a crisis mode. When you live in permanent supportive housing, there is uh, availability of services should you want them. So it's voluntary Mm -hmm. services and um, they're available um, to help stabilize the person, help work on whatever the person wants to work on in terms of housing goals, mental Mm -hmm. health issues, addiction, recovery, a whole host of things Uh, by the person. You guys help out a lot of people. I mean, how, how do these people even find you, right? Because they must be in a situation, in a less than ideal situation. And you just mentioned like homeless shelters and traditional housing are more temporary solutions. Right. So do you guys work with those homeless shelters to offer those solutions to them? How else do people find you if they were to need help? We do. So the way that you access uh, community housing networks uh properties or housing is through uh, two main systems. The first is the homeless system. Mm -hmm. So uh, in central Ohio, the community shelter board is one of our main referral sources. They run the homeless system and homeless prevention system in central Ohio. And so to access permanent supportive housing, you need to um, 
be chronically homeless by the HUD definition, which means that you've been on the streets for 365 days mm. or some combination of long uh, episodes of time on the streets over uh, a year period. And so that is one avenue. The folks come through uh, the community shelter board to us and if they fit our criteria in terms of um, they're eligible for the housing at an income level, which all of them are, and a uh, couple of our eligibility criteria, then um, they come into our housing. The second referral source is the alcohol um, and mental health board in Franklin County. And they provide the mental health system for our community. And so for that system, if you are um, in a psychiatric hospital or in a residential program and you are being released and you would be released to homelessness, then you can be referred mm -hmm. to our housing. And again, you have to be able to live independently in the environment, into the community with supportive services. And um, if you are, then we bring you in and get you set up. Wow. I'm, I'm just thinking in the back of my eye. So I, I live in Southern California right now and we hear about the homelessness crisis and it just seems out of hand, right? There's so many that needs help. What does the wait list look like for your housing? Is it crazy years long? How does that look like? Give us a little sense of the dire need. So um, for some of our uh we have wait lists for some of our properties. It depends on how the property was funded. If it's funded through HUD, um, some mm -hmm. of those properties have wait lists and those can be uh, multiple years. Wow. Three to eight years of a wait list. Uh, for the most part, most of our units um, are managed through a, a community wait list. So with the example of the community shelter board, they are managing the people that are coming in and the flow. And we basically say we have some openings and we need four um, referrals or four people um, to come okay. into our housing. Wow. Three to eight years. Mm -hmm. Th that, I mean, that just shares with people how dire the waitlist is. I mean, I just told you before we got on a call, like the waitlist for a section eight home is 12 to 15 years here in San right. Diego County. And even for these folks, that sounds like they actually really, really need help, especially with the support services. Three to eight years, that's a really, really long time. It can be. I mean, yes. What do folks do when, while they're on a wait list? Do they stay in a shelter? Like, what have you seen? I'm just interested to hear some stories of folks that you've heard, because I think one of the reasons we wanted to have you on a podcast is to inspire people to get involved in this. And just the three to eight years sounds crazy to me. So just tell yeah. us some stories of folks that you may be able to help and just give us a sense of what people are doing before they can actually get any aid from you guys. Uh, I, you know, if, if they are on a wait list or, you know, because most of our folks come in when we say to our funders, we have an opening, um, especially for the, the homeless uh, individuals, they've been living on the streets. And so one of the um, people that we've had the pleasure of working with. Uh, his name is Michael and he lives in one of our properties that um, has 24 hour, seven day a week services. And he was abandoned by his family at the age of 12 and he bounced between shelters and 
kind of floated on couches between friends and family and also lived on the street. For the two years before he came to us, he had a tent on the back porch of an abandoned home. And see, Michael also had experienced traumatic brain injury and had significant mental health struggles as a result of that, particularly depression and substance use. And so when he came into our housing, he worked with our on-site provider to stabilize his mental health mm -hmm. and his physical health. And he's managing that very well now. And he's active oh, in the wow. community. He advocates for others that are struggling with tra traumatic brain injury. And so he's an example of, um, I would say many of our folks come in having some blend of living on the streets, being in shelters, maybe being in emergency facilities like psychiatric facilities uh, or couch surfing wherever wow. they can with family and friends. That almost seems like a, a, an impossible situation to get out of yourself, if, especially if, you know, being abandoned by your family at such a young age, how can you expect to kind of fend for yourself? And so you go into this loop. Right. Wow. Um, that's so cool that he's, he sounds like he's doing much better now. Maybe this is a good transition. Like what type of services do you provide your residents? Because you just mentioned something about, you know, mental health support. Can you just give us a brief flavor of like what type of services you're, you're referring to on sure. your facility for your residents? Sure. So we actually have three uh, levels of housing within the continuum that we manage. So we develop the, the properties, we own them, and we manage them. And then we also provide the social services that are available to the residents. The most uh, intensive kind of site that we have, kind of the most level of support that we have, we call creatively 24-7 sites. They have 24-7 um, services on site. And um, then we have a middle level that we call service enriched. They have service providers on site during business hours, but not mm. in the evenings and weekends. And then we have independent housing, which is scattered housing, smaller units um, throughout the community. And they do not have on site services. They have people come into them on whatever basis they need. And when I say services, um, we, we have contracted service partners, uh, mental health centers that are in our community that contract mm -hmm. with us to provide services, as well as we have some of our own service coordinators. We really focus on, uh, in the scattered sites, the ones that are throughout the community, helping coordinate services. So when somebody comes in and they're signing their lease at the same time that they're signing their lease, they're meeting the service provider. And that person is talking with um, our new resident and saying, and getting a sense of where their struggles have been, what goals do they have for their own housing? Um, what kinds of things, what kinds of supports do they need mental health wise, addiction wise, employment wise, just to be able to hit the goals they have for their own housing instability. So things like mental health and addiction counseling, we would link them to that. Um, identifying additional benefits that they might mm. be eligible for to increase their income, either through benefits or we also help with job readiness and employment services. Uh, life skills training. You know, some of these folks have um, 
you know, lived on the streets or mm -hmm. um, might not have um, grown up in environments where they learn the independent living skills that they need to live yeah. and be successful. So we provide that as well. General health and wellness in our sites that are 24-7 and serviced enriched, they typically have a nurse practitioner on site who comes wow. multiple times a week to help with the health um, and physical issue and care mm -hmm. for the folks. And then we just provide general opportunities for engagement to be with their neighbors, to build a community together. So things like cookouts, game nights, mm. uh, guitar lessons. It's wow. that really depends on the residents in any given building, what they tell us they're interested in. We seek resources um, to bring that wow. to them. I, I mean, you just listed out so many. <laughs> I did, didn't I? Sorry. I know, but this is great because I think people underestimate what it takes to really help someone and impact someone's life. When people just are like, I just want to help people, right? It's that generic term you hear. Mm -hmm. But when you think about how do you actually transform someone's life, you actually need all these ones, depending on someone's situation, obviously. But that's what it takes to truly get someone prepared for someone that might have been in an unfortunate situation who might have just been dealt the, the bad set of cards, actually get back on their feet. So you talked about life skills, like job training, job readiness. Like that's what it takes to get someone out. And people would talk about like, how do we solve for homelessness? You, you don't just put someone in somewhere and just hope it solves itself. You need to help them along the areas and actually see them go through the process and that journey to become a whole different person on the other end. Right. Do you guys track like the success of your services? Like how how many people do you even like make it out? Like, and what do you guys even define as success? That's really interesting. I would love to kind of hear more about that. We do track outcomes. Uh, the mm -hmm. two primary ones that we look at in terms of resident success uh, would be housing stability, again, because the folks that we work with um, have come to us without a history of great housing stability. So we look mm -hmm. at uh, our benchmark is, uh, have they lived with us for 24 months or longer? Mm -hmm. And uh, some folks will live with us for much longer. We're yeah. pretty serious about permanent means permanent. Um, but we also, you know, if their goals are to stabilize themselves and move on and through, we help them do that as well. But we found that looking at 24 months, uh, you know, that they've maintained stability for 24 months um, is a good measure of success. And mm -hmm. last year, about 75 to 80% of our tenants had been with us for two years or longer. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And then the, the second measure that we look at with regard to uh, resident or tenant outcomes is when they leave us, are they going to permanent housing? So we call that a successful exit, um, that someone is leaving our housing and they're moving into other permanent housing. They're not going back like to the street. Renting their own place or something like that. Right. Got it. Got right. it. And um, last year, our exit success rate was 95%. So what? left, 95% of those folks remained housed. Um after they left us. Wow. Right. Congratulations. Thank that you. is an amazing, amazing metric. That is so cool because 95%. And obviously, if they get their own permanent housing, I'm assuming 
usually I can make an assumption like they've either gotten a job or something like that because of all the services that you guys have set them up for the success to actually get another permanent housing. Is that an mm -hmm. accurate assumption? Okay. Some of them, some of them will have um, accessed um, a system of benefits that allows them mm -hmm. to be a little more stable. Some of them do find employment um, or get involved in the community in a different way. The reality of the residents that we have is that many of them will most likely be in subsidized housing um, mm -hmm. for their uh, much of their lifetime or for the remainder mm -hmm. of their lifetime. And um, so it's helping them find other safe and permanent housing that's also affordable. Got it. So you guys are probably helping them, you know, it was formally known as Section 8, but you guys help them get on the housing choice voucher program too? Is that right. what you mean by separate housing? Okay, got it. And actually, we have roughly uh, 1,500 units throughout apartments um, throughout Franklin County in Central Ohio. Every single one of our units is subsidized. So Got for it. most of them, not quite all of them, but for most of the units, um, when someone comes into our program, they have a voucher that will be portable with them after a year. And so that they'll be able to move if they're ready into different housing with that voucher. Wow. Uh, okay. Got it. So right then and there, just from coming into your ecosystem, for lack of better words, they're already in sort of the waiting period where I'm right. getting services, I'm getting support. And then when I'm ready, whether I got a job or not, there's also something else. I have an option to go somewhere else that right. allows right. me to continue my life, basically. Right. Wow. That is right. so cool what you guys are doing. Yeah. And if our, if, our, if our residents choose to access our services, the first thing that we'll do is create a plan with them. And mm -hmm. so that plan kind of guides them in building what they want to build in their lives. Um, and But it also includes when you're ready to leave, we help them plan out how to leave, where you're going to go, how mm -hmm. to set your stop up so that it's not just a straight cut and see you later. It, right. you know, we help them transition. Right. Because a straight cut generally doesn't work out. Like usually right. you, you need a community. You need some sort of support system to kind of encourage you to keep going on. Wow, that is amazing. What does it take to run this operation? You just said 1,500 units. Like, how big is your organization? Like, how you mentioned you have contractor services, but like, how many people do you have in house? And maybe, like, do you have a sense of how many other third party contractors do you actually employ to actually support all these residents? Yeah. Uh, so, our agency is about 110 people. Got it. Uh, and I would say two thirds of that are in um, supportive services, property management mm -hmm. and maintenance. Uh, and so it, you know, we have the same struggles as any uh, property management company would. Uh, and there are some unique pieces. It typically costs more to run a permanent supportive housing uh, property because of the um well services the service costs for one mm -hmm. but also the maintenance costs can be a little bit more um working with people as they're learning life skills there might be more maintenance needs mm -hmm. um throughout Understood. the course of someone's stay with us um we have uh how many we have four 
maybe five contracted service providers that work with mm -hmm. us. And so our service providers are um, key providers in the fabric of the community. Uh, and they uh, work with us primarily on our single site properties, meaning those 24 seven sites mm -hmm. and the service enriched. So they will um, provide the services at those sites. And um, they cover, it's about half of our units in the single Got sites. It. So about 800 units or 700 units are in the single sites and about seven or 800 are in the scattered sites. Wow. And the scattered sites, we have service coordinators that serve them. What a massive operation. Wow. Like a Jennifer, lot of so moving pieces, that's for sure. Seriously. Mm -hmm. wow. That's a lot of work that people are signing on. Well, namely you also, when you sign on to be the CEO position. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm curious, like you just talked about 1500 units, how many people you guys have employed. What else does your organization need to continue to expand it? Because it seems like there is definitely a need for this because right. there's people with three to eight year wait lists. What do you guys need to continue expanding and helping more people? Uh, funding wise, the, the we there is a growing gap in terms of service funding, and that is um, really has to do with what is a wrong pocket challenge, which means. Um, we provide services that actually are less expensive than some of the uh, crisis system services. So like emergency rooms, hospitals, uh, corrections facilities, uh, those all have a much higher cost of serving people than does PSH. Mm -hmm. And we actually had a program where we looked at um, ratio of number of tenants to number of staff and received some funding to do a pilot program where we reduced the ratio. So we had 50 tenants to one service person. And in the past, it had been 100 or 200 tenants to one service person. And when we implemented that, we had a third party evaluator come and look at our outcomes. And one of the things that they found was that in general, for every dollar that was invested, in our program, there was a dollar thirty-eight return to the community because the people that were getting these services were not accessing emergency services as much. They were more stable. They were more stable with their mental health, more stable with their physical health, um, felt more part of their community. In so just that 18 month period of the pilot program, it was a couple hundred thousand dollars savings for 50 people to the community. Wow. That is impressive. And I, I want to make, maybe I'll draw from experience from my own life just to kind of make it real for people. I used to be an EMT for five years and I've taken homeless folks to the emergency room. And in those scenarios, generally they are covered by either a state health insurance plan to cover the ambulance ride and also for an ER visit. That is why when you're able to take folks off the street sometimes, in general, I'm making an assumption here, mm -hmm. you are able to reduce the cost to the city because now this person actually has a stable home that can actually go through the journey and she get out instead of continually staying in a vicious cycle where they're calling for help and then actually costing the city and state more money. I just want right. to provide a live example because I used to see this firsthand myself. And I thought, well, there must be a better way 
to help right. these folks because calling 911 for an ambulance ride to the ER because it's super cold outside, that's not the permanent solution. So, right. Well, very, and the very services that we're providing, right, the services mm -hmm. we're providing are, you know, it's yes, people are in their own homes. And, mm -hmm. uh, but our services help them provide that foundation and a level of stability that prevents the crisis in the first place. So that they aren't accessing services even from their own home as frequently as they would because they've got the support that they need. Got it. And that makes so much sense when you think yeah. about it. Right. <laughs> so you guys are looking for funding. I got that noted down. What yeah. else do you need? Do you need uh, you know, like probably like many, yeah. like many developers, we need developable, developable land, yes. <laughs> we need land. Uh, and so, and that's a finite resource and can be quite a challenge. Yes. We do have some advantages over a market developer in that we don't depend on foot traffic for mm -hmm. our leasing. So we don't necessarily uh, have to be in really visible locations or um, you know, a place that's easy, we can be a little off the beaten path, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. So that is an advantage that if we can capitalize on, we do. Uh, the other challenge is uh, public transportation. And this would probably fluctuate by you know, the city that someone's developing in, but for our area, you know, our tenants rely on public transportation mm -hmm. and really having, um, you know, it's, an expanded transportation system into new locations that would help the accessibility of people getting to and fro from affordable housing. Uh, zoning would be another thing that would help us expand in terms of being more open to multifamily zoning versus single family, particularly in suburbs where there are resources that um, folks could really benefit from accessing, but right now the zoning makes that difficult. Um, and I would say in terms of the social service system, you know, I talked about um, the cost savings that we have to the community. There isn't currently a mechanism to take those cost savings and put it back into permanent mm. supportive housing. Uh, so that it keeps generating a revenue stream. Uh, we're very fortunate in Central Ohio uh, with our um, HUD Continuum of Care program and our alcohol, drug, and mental health system, our housing authority leadership at the county and city. They've all supported PSH and the operations. And we were, you know, hoping that as we showed that this works and we've proven that it works, that some of that other funding would start flowing and it hasn't quite happened yet, but um, we hope it too. The other piece around social systems is when you work within human systems, and I know this um, from my background, every system has its own language, mm -hmm. it, its own way of operating, its own regulations, its own paperwork, mm -hmm. its own, mm -hmm. the whole shebang. And if it were if there were a way to simplify it sounds uh, pollyannish i suppose like can we please simplify the regulations and make this more of a system of care in terms of is there a way to streamline reporting requirements documentation requirements across federal state local 
entities, that would help us stretch our resources further as well. Wow. I mean, you just named off like so many different things and these are actual impactful items. If we were ever to get those changes kind of implemented or passed through, mm -hmm. you mentioned something about zoning and multifamily. Are you referring to, you just need the density to be changed? I'm assuming you're talking about single family home right. uh, that you're trying to get, acquire the land. Well, how, maybe let's ask me, let me ask you this a little bit differently. How many units do you typically want to build on the site when you acquire those land? Is it 50 to 100 or 100 plus? Help us understand like what is the criteria that you're looking for when you're looking for this land? Uh, it really is determined by our real estate development team when they're looking at um, cost per unit, cost for the property, and how can it be maintained? Where's the funding coming from? Um, many of our, our properties are funded through the federal tax credit program. And so um, usually our properties are around 40 to 60 units. We have a few that are smaller, a few that are bigger. Um, but for the most part, that's where we seem to land in terms of what is um, able to be uh, sustained financially. Got it. And when you were talking about a federal tax credit program, what which one did you mean? Are you talking about a low income housing tax credit? Uh, just yeah. want to understand like which one you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just for the folks that are listening that don't really understand the low income housing tax credit, like how do you actually take advantage of that program to make it work for what you guys are doing on the development side? So, um, well, the, the, low in, the low income housing tax credit program was designed really to encourage investment in affordable housing. And it is the largest or number one housing production program in the country. And it's really at the heart of almost every project that we do at this point. Uh, historically, it's been banks and insurance companies that have been the largest investors through that. Although in the early days, individuals would also invest in funds to receive tax credits that apply um, against the taxes that would be owed in the future. Really, we would we recommend that people talk to their tax advisors for guidance of how to get into that um, world and to see if it's something that would be of interest. That's great because you just mentioned like, it's usually banks and insurance companies, right? Is there an opportunity? I know you mentioned they got to talk to their CPAs, but how can investors actually be involved in it? Is it only through donations? Because it seems like there is an investment opportunity for people that want to invest whatever the returns might be, but towards a cause that they care about that they might enjoy knowing that their dollar is going further to helping someone versus just putting into the stock market as an example. Right. So how can investors be involved in this and actually make a return? Right. On the so aside from the, the low income housing tax credit program in central Ohio, we have um, some uh, unique lending vehicles, uh, things like the affordable housing trust fund of Columbus, Ohio, and the Ohio Capital Finance Corporation. Those are both uh, community development fund institutions, and they look for creative ways to provide capital to affordable housing activities. So investors might want to look at ent those entities or entities like those to see, to find ways to be involved as an individual or through a financial institution. Certainly donations are always welcome. Um, the philanthropic program, we, we use a blend of our, our government funding 
as well as philanthropic funding. Got it. Understood. So it seems like they can look into these other entities and would they be investing in them as a investor and then it becomes a pool of cash to lend towards you? I just want to make sure I understand not necessarily the mechanics, but in general, how does the process work? So investors can have clarity on like, hey, where where is my money going? Is it going to them and then they decide it's going to go to you? Uh, that piece I'm not as familiar with, but okay. I'm sure that if researching those, they'd be able to answer that. Okay, understand. Uh, and then you talked about the low income housing tax credits, right? Can you explain to us like how the banks, insurance companies, just in case any of them are listening, like how do they get, actually get a return on their capital? Are you able to explain that piece of the process at all? That is out of my world. <laughs> no worries. It sounds very complicated. Yeah. I mean, there are professional tax tax professionals for this stuff, right? So right. completely understand that part. But I've heard of how banks and insurance companies like can kind of purchase those low income housing tax credits at like a percentage of a dollar or something like that that you guys can use to fund your development right. efforts. So uh, I think for any of our audience listening right now, please make sure you look up the low income housing tax credit program, actually understand the mechanics of how and of course consult your CPA because none of anything that Jennifer and I are talking about is financial or legal advice. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so it sounds like there. this has been an amazing conversation, Jennifer, because I, I never knew something like this existed. I felt like there were a lot of times when I was growing up, it was either Section 8 or you're kind of off on your own. It's so cool that you guys have developed this program that truly transforms people's life. And you're doing it at scale with over 1,500 units. That's amazing. Uh, I'm actually really interested to hear about you. Like, It seems like you guys have been successful so far in what you're doing. But why do you think just like the lack of affordable housing is so hard to solve for. And if you think there were like one to two top priorities that you think this generation should focus on, like what might they be? I would love to hear your thoughts here. So I would point um, your audience to the work of uh, Shane Phillips. He's an author and a scholar and has broken down the affordable housing challenge into three primary categories. The first is uh, supply stability, the second is stability, and the third is subsidy. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, affordable housing is such a complex issue with contributing factors. And what he talks about is it is difficult to solve for because you have to solve for those three things, supply, stability, subsidy at the same time. If you solve for one or two, you're actually going to exacerbate the third. And so and an example of that would be, you know, even if you have a robust increase of supply or new construction of properties, um, even if that supply has rent subsidy that supports folks who might not be able to afford housing without it, that new housing can lead to instability because it leads to gentrification and destabilizing communities. If you don't have the other pieces kind of rolling with it at the same time, right? So um, the city of Columbus has actually embraced this challenge and their housing policy uh, is very, uh, relates well to this concept by Shane Phillips. It recognizes a three-pronged approach in their housing plan. One is that we need to preserve our existing housing. The second is that we need to build more housing. And the third is that we need to continue to find ways to house people that don't have the ability to ever afford housing. 
So that's the subsidy piece, right? So um, that is a, you know, in our mind, thankfully we are in Columbus and we see that it, it aligns with that premise. Wow, that is a very well thought out answer. <laughs> <laughs> and it helps that you, there's also a book. So it was Shane Phillips. And what was a book that you mentioned? That you, you I don't have his book title, but he, okay. he is an author and he's written. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out now that you recommended that. That's really interesting how they broke it out because now that you explain it, the three-pronged approach, it makes perfect sense. A lot of folks I've talked to just simply says, hey, it's usually a supply issue, but you're completely correct. Just because you build more supply does not necessarily mean it's stable and people will actually uptake it, especially if the cost of housing continues Right. Increase. So, and yeah, and even within supply, you know, we, clearly we need a strong economy that has the labor and the materials at the price points uh, that make sense for creating housing. But also, we need people making enough money to be able to afford the higher cost of housing. And um, the the erosion of the middle class and having a smaller middle class with fewer people that have that purchasing power at the right price point then um, that is also needed. The middle class is needed to supply um, as the system as well. In terms of stability, uh, if you look at increasing the supply, then there also needs to be measures and strategies to stabilize the neighborhoods. So, um, revitalization is positive. It's great. And often it happens at a pace where the neighbors can't keep up with it. So if there were measures in place that allowed homeowners to defer new increases mm. in property taxes mm. for whatever period of time needed, um, having limits on how much rent can go up every year. And then, you know, you know, perhaps having a fund where landlords can tap into uh, so that the inflation costs of operating don't impact or create a dire need to increase rent at large, you know, in large increases. So, and subsidy will always remain a need uh, as well. Yeah, it just sounds like there just needs to be a really huge partnership from both sides, private, public, and also mm -hmm. um, communities and organizations just like yourself in order to yeah. actually truly make this work. So this is an amazing conversation, Jennifer. I feel like I've learned so much and I can't wait for the audience to listen to this interview and actually absorb everything that you've talked about. Uh, maybe one more question for you is like, have you, and you probably won't know this answer, but I'm interested in case you are, like you talked about people who have been on a waitlist for like three to eight years. Have you guys actually thought about like how many units do you actually need to get that waitlist down to, I don't know, a year or, you know, no wait list. Have you guys ever thought about that and what the unit demand actually looks like? Um, so the way that we uh, project and plan out our housing, we really rely um, in large part on the HUD continuum of care mm. uh, research. And prior to the pandemic, our community in central Ohio had come very close to having enough housing in permanent supportive housing that was needed. We were within probably 1500 units. Now the pandemic, the pandemic um, blew that up. <laughs> I, I don't have the actual um, more recent numbers now. Um, we look at how much more supportive housing does our community need? 
And again, we're focused on a pretty fine-tuned population. So the people with the mental health and addictions, uh, mental health disabilities and addictions, and uh, people with histories of homelessness. There is supportive housing that's needed for other populations as well. Wow, that is amazing. And I imagine have like other municipalities or other counties like reached out to you guys asking you guys about like, hey, what has worked? Because you guys have wildly uh, impressive metrics. Uh, has anyone reached out to you, to your organization and asked like, hey, how are you guys doing this? What's worked? What's not worked? I'm just interested. <laughs> they do. We have requests um, from people who are looking to develop in other counties. Uh, okay. We do have two properties that we're developing right now in Lucas County, which is Toledo, Ohio, mm -hmm. Northwest Ohio. Um, and <clears throat> uh, there have been other counties in Ohio that have uh, sought out our resources, other uh, human service organizations, even within central Ohio that are interested mm -hmm. in uh, developing permanent supportive housing uh, have come to us and asked, how do you do this? Can you help <sighs> us do this? Um, so we do do that as well. Wow. That is super cool. And I'm, I absolutely love that what you're doing is now spreading because mm -hmm. that's what we really need. And that's one of the reasons we wanted you have have you on this podcast so that we can spread the information so people mm -hmm. can actually learn from other people that are doing this well versus everybody trying to figure out on their own. It's like learn from right. them what, what they have done and just take their best practices and apply it to your own area. So Jennifer, as we're kind of wrapping up, like where else can people get in touch with you or with Commuting Housing Network if they want to get involved? So certainly you can go to our website, which is uh, chninc.org, or um, you can contact me. Uh, my email is jsharma at chninc.org. And um, either of those, we can get you connected in, um, answer your questions. Yeah. That's super amazing. And I, and I can't wait for the audience to hear this conversation. Jennifer, this has been an amazing conversation. I can't thank you enough. Time is one of our most precious resources, but seriously, thank you and your organization for what you do, because without people like you, I would have never had a stable home growing up in affordable housing. So you guys have provided a stable home for so many families for that they can kind of come out of the other end as renewed individuals and positive contributor to society. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you for what you do again. Great. Thank you.